Amen. Great job, and thank you for using your talents to serve Jesus that way. Praise the Lord. I'm going to ask Gary Leitz to come. He's going to read the scripture reading for us this morning. And as he's coming, you can take your Bible and turn to Psalm 110. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one right in front of you, in the seat in front of you, or the seat underneath you, or behind you, close to you. Uh, Psalm 110. If you would turn there, Gary will read that for us and lead us in prayer. Will you all please stand? You guys look taller. All right. Psalms 110, Psalms of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. The womb of your mourning. In the dew of your youth, you will be yours. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at the right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpse. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let us pray. Father God, just thank you that we can meet the first day of the week and worship and praise your holy, mighty name with brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, it's, you know our hearts. And Lord, you can, you're the only one that can change them. Thank you that we make it much about you, Lord Jesus, and, and uh, being our mediator and our royal high priest. Yes. Uh, you're the kings of kings and Lord of lords. Yes. Lord, as we uh, look at this text, be with uh, Brother Steve as he unfolds and, and uh, brings your message. Help us to open up our ears and hearts, hearts and uh, allow the Spirit to move changes. We need to be changed, Lord. We're broken. I, uh, I pray for the, for the one that doesn't know you today, that today will be the day of salvation. For it's in the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I love the book of Psalms. We've been going through the book of Psalms, not the entire book, but uh, we've been going through this different kinds of psalms and looking at what the, the theme of the gospel in the psalms over the past several weeks. And one of the things we love about the psalms, I believe, is because the psalms reflect the different human emotions. If, uh, if we're angry, there are psalms that talk about having righteous indignation and anger and how to pray that and how to be honest with the Lord. We're questioning the Lord. We don't understand. We cry out, how long, oh God, how long? And there's psalms of thanksgiving and joy that express where we're at in our place in life. So we love the psalms for, for those reasons. They're very human. And it reminds us that we can go to God and, and talk to him and we don't have to wear a mask before the living God. Amen. And then there's Psalm 110. 
And we come to this morning and we're reminded that no matter what our emotions might be, whether we're you know, all gung-ho this morning or we're feeling very low, this Psalm 110, when I've studied it and read it, is a psalm meant to encourage you no matter how you're feeling this morning. It's a psalm meant to lift you up. It's a psalm meant to point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ reigns. And that is meant to encourage us, to bring us joy in the midst of whatever it is we might be feeling or going through. Two things about the psalm I want to point out to you. One is the title of the psalm. We believe these psalm titles are inspired. Uh, and notice Psalm 110, what's it say? A psalm of David. So who wrote the psalm? David wrote the psalm. God spoke through David. David wrote the psalm. But there are some people who say that David didn't write the psalm because of verse 1. Now look at your Bible in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Some people don't think David wrote the psalm because they think somebody else is writing about David becoming king here and being installed as king. And so what they're, and it's a hard, it's kind of a little tricky verse to understand, but there's some trickier ones here I don't understand in Psalm 110. But when he says, the Lord says to my Lord, what the, some who don't think David actually wrote this, they think someone else wrote it and is talking about David being installed as king. And so it's God saying to this person who, this person's king, which is David. The Lord said to my Lord David. Okay, you understand that? And so that's what they're saying. But that's not right because the psalm title says it's a psalm of David. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 that when he was being questioned by the Pharisees and they're trying to play stump the preacher, you can't stump Jesus. And they were asking him hard questions. He said, I got a question for you. You say that, Dave, that the Messiah, the Christ, is David's son. How can he be David's son when David says he's Lord? And Matthew chapter 22, verse 43 says, he said to them, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? So Jesus, what does Jesus say about Psalm 110, about who wrote it? Jesus says, David in the spirit calls him Lord. And then he quotes from Psalm 110. So Jesus is saying, David wrote this psalm. And so that's one thing about the title. Got it? Second thing about the title is, is this. And another thing about that, a son can't be greater than a father. And so, so what David's doing here is he's not saying my son is greater than me. He's, saying, he's talking about somebody else. He's talking about his descendant is greater than him, not just a person. But also one other thing, sometimes I frustrate Marcia in, in different ways and sometimes I'll give her a change in a sermon title. So there's, a, there's the title of the psalm I want to point your attention to. Then... Uh, the title of the message this morning is The Reign of Our Lord Jesus Christ. And so earlier in the week, uh, when I gave Marsha the stuff for the bulletin, I said, here's the sermon title, The Reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with that. Then I came in later and said, Marsha, I want to change it to The Reign of Our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm wondering if she's thinking, <laughs> I don't know what Marsha's thinking, I didn't ask her. So I didn't know if I want to know what she's thinking or not. So I changed from the Lord Jesus Christ to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that subtle change here is this. In the context of Psalm 110, Israel, David uh, being king, perhaps Israel was observing, was, was meant to observe Israel, David reigning as king. Things were going well in his reign for the most part, okay? 
And, and they're thinking, man, this is our king and, and God's given us a king named David and, and we're having victory right now over our enemies and so forth. And, and, and David is saying, look, David writes this psalm inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, look, the Lord, you, you think my installation as king has been a blessing for Israel? Then, then sing this song. The Lord said to my Lord, not me, the Lord said to my Lord, David is saying, sit at, your, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what David is saying is, look, you're rejoicing right now at the condition of Israel because I'm installed as king. Let me sing this song. What's going on here is a microcosm and a picture of what is to come, which is far greater because there's a Messiah coming. There's a Lord coming. My Lord is coming and his reign is something to sing about. His, his reign is something to be encouraged about, Israel. And so what they're supposed to say is as they, as they think about how our King David reigns, their mind's supposed to shift to something far greater and to say our Messiah is going to reign. He's going to come and he's going to reign forever. And what we're supposed to do when we sing this song is our Messiah is reigning. He has come. We're not, we're not saying our, he's becoming. He's come. He died. He rose again. We celebrated that last week. And then after he rose again, he ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and his session as king has begun. He is reigning. And the main point of this psalm is this. Jesus is Lord. Our Lord Jesus, we're supposed to sing this song and say, our Lord Jesus Christ reigns. Even with tears coming down our face because we don't understand what's going on around us, we know this unchanging fact. Our Lord Jesus Christ reigns. Right now I'm sick, I'm hurting, I don't understand why this happened and why that happened. Our Lord Jesus Christ reigns though. And we're supposed to praise God and be encouraged because that is the one unchanging, sustaining, eternal, unimaginable, unfathomable, undeserved truth for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ reigns. He is Lord. We don't make him Lord. You say, you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. And I understand why we say that, right? You know, some people want to be saved from their sin, but they don't want to follow Jesus. Well, that's hogwash. If you turn to Christ, you're turning to follow Christ. He's, you know, you recognize him as Lord. But we don't make him Lord, right? He, he rose from the dead. He is reigning as Lord right now. And one day, every knee and every tongue shall, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, because he already is Lord. So whether you believe that or not, whether you're born again or not, one day you will confess that he is Lord, and it may be eternally too late. So repent, turn to him now, Join us in the joyful chorus of heaven's assembly and cry out, our Lord Jesus Christ reigns. He is Lord. Now, we see that played out in Psalm 110 in different ways. Number one, the Lord Jesus is ruling as our king. I didn't say the Lord Jesus will rule as our king. You hear me? The Lord Jesus is ruling as not the king, our king. He's my king. He, I'm, I'm singing this with joy because guess what? The one that rules the heavens, he's my king. He's our king. 
I'm a citizen of his kingdom. Better than that, like we sung this morning, hello, my name is child of the one true king. Woo, glory! I'm a child of the king. So when somebody is a child of the king, born again into his kingdom, they can sing this song and say, well, that's nice that so-and-so's king over there. No. He's my king. He's our king, right? And our king is reigning. It's not the king of some other dominion, but it's, but it's the only true king, the eternal king, the king of kings is reigning, and he's our king, and I'm a child of the king because of his promise that he made to Abraham and to David and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is ruling as our king. Jesus Christ is ruling the universe. Look at your Bible in verse one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus Christ is told, prophesied about here, sit at my right hand. It means to sit down and begin to reign. When Jesus rose again, and was ascended to heaven, he began to rule the universe. Acts chapter two, verse 32. Acts chapter two, verse 32, tells us this. Peter got up to preach on the day of Pentecost, and he quoted from Psalm 110. In fact, some would say Psalm 110 is quoted or alluded to more than any other psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110, or excuse me, Acts chapter two, verse 32 says this. This Jesus, God raised up, and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Remember, it's the day of Pentecost, right? For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, see Peter's saying it too, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, our Lord Jesus Christ reigns is what he's saying. You just crucified him, but he's reigning. He's not dead. He's alive. And so repent and be baptized, he tells him later, for the forgiveness of sins. and Recognize his lordship and follow him. Jesus is ruling the universe, so what Psalm 110 verse 1 says, God tells us through Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, that's been fulfilled. Psalm 110 verse 1, you're looking at your Bible? It's happened. He's reigning right now. He's ruling the universe right now. Yet the enemies of Christ reject his rule over them. Over, over them. Obviously, people in the world don't want Jesus Christ rule over them. Some of you may not want his rule over you. Notice what it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, until, that word until means something hadn't happened yet, right? So there are still enemies of Christ that are upon the earth. And so Satan certainly is an enemy. We're called enemies of the cross of Christ if we reject the gospel. We are his enemies if we are not been born again into his kingdom. Yet, despite all of this, Jesus rules sovereignly. Look at verse two. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. So the Lord, capital letters, L-O-R-D there, means Yahweh. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. The Lord, the Father, sends forth the scepter, the, the, the rule and reign and power of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, his son, the Messiah. 
He says, he sends forth your mighty scepter. Listen, if the Lord sends forth your power, if the Lord's sending out your scepter, then you gotta, you gotta know that you're gonna be successful. And so the picture here is that this Messiah that's gonna reign and now does reign in fulfillment of that, he is all powerful. He is omnipotent. We are part of the most powerful nation in the world, the United States of America. Proud to be an American, right? And there's just no other nation like us. Even in our military might, despite a lot of things that's happened in political things in the past few years, we still have the strongest military in the world. Yet, there are things that we are limited, we can't do. There are still people sneaking across our borders. There's still weapons in North Korea. There's still all kinds of stuff going on slave trade in Asia we'd like to stop but we as powerful as we are can't do anything about some of those things Jesus our king our true king he has all power his scepter has been sent forth by the Lord he is sovereign just like we sang about this morning sovereign over us he is all powerful our king is all powerful he is a sovereign king Jesus rules sovereignly and Jesus rules spiritually because well, it's important for us to know because we look and we say well he's ruling but why is this happening and why is this happening he rules sovereignly you're faithful ever perfect in love you're sovereign over us even when the enemy's plans are evil you're working for our good you're working for our good you're working for your glory were you just mouthing those words earlier or you were singing something that you believe He's working for our good. He's working for his glory. He reigns. He rules sovereignly. He's reigning spiritually. Notice it says here, he's ruling in the midst of your enemies. How, what, how would you ever say that about a king to be ruling if he still has enemies surrounding him? So Jesus is ruling in the midst of this world from his heavenly throne by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. He's ruling. He's sovereign. He's ruling spiritually over this world, reigning from his throne right now. So we ask with eyes of faith to believe this and trust. And what's the response of God's people? Your people will offer themselves, look verse three. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. You see that? The Lord Jesus Christ is ruling his king. He's ruling sovereignly. He's ruling spiritually. And what's the response of the people supposed to be? Your people offer themselves willingly. I joined the army that many of you know when I was really 17 and been a few years and couldn't wait to get out, but I would gladly serve again, especially if my country needed me to. I'm very thankful for that time. I, I would willingly volunteer, as I did before, and do that again, and I know many of you would as well. Here the picture is, these people have confidence in their king and love for the kingdom so much that they will willingly volunteer themselves. So the picture here is this. We have a king who is ruling, so we should be volunteering to serve him. That's what's going on in verse three, if you look at it. They, they see him ruling, and they, they willingly offer themselves, hey, we want to serve you. You're sovereign. Why would we serve anybody else? That would be foolish. And so when we look at Jesus and we consider that his sovereign rule over the universe, he's ruling as king, we say, Lord, I offer myself willingly. I voluntarily use me to extend your kingdom. So the application here is this. As we offer ourselves willingly, we, we enlist in Jesus' army to extend his kingdom. Acts chapter one, verse six, the disciple says, Lord, is it now that you're gonna restore your kingdom? And then later he tells him in verse eight, you should be my witnesses. Power is gonna come upon you. You should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. 
In other words, it wasn't the Lord's time for him to establish his earthly kingdom right now. He was ruling, he's gonna rule spiritually from heaven, sitting on his throne. But in the meantime, he's saying to these 11 untrained, poor, powerless disciples, you take the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and you extend my kingdom and you do this willingly, you do this voluntarily and that's what they do when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Suddenly you've got Peter standing up who denied Jesus three times and now he's telling the very same people in the crowd that just crucified Jesus a few weeks earlier, now he's saying, you crucified him. I mean, where did that boldness come from? And tradition says that when he's executed, he's, he says he wants to be crucified upside down instead of the other way because he was unworthy of being crucified in the exact same way that Jesus was. His love for Jesus was so much. Man, when we get a real good picture of Christ and his rule and his reign, it should cause us to say, Lord Jesus, here I am, send me. I'm ready, Lord, to serve you and to follow you. The Lord Jesus is ruling as our king. We should be volunteering to serve him. Secondly, the Lord Jesus is serving as our high priest. Look at verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, we could preach three or four sermons about what that means. But you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Imagine somebody, sometimes it happens on the football field when a quarterback throws a pass that the pass deflects off somebody's helmet or something like that, then the quarterback ends up catching the ball himself, right? That happens occasionally. Not, not very common, but it does. Um, happened against my Kansas City Chiefs not long ago. The other team did it. They didn't like that very much. But normally the quarterback doesn't, you know, sometimes I'm playing, you're playing one-on-one. -on -one. My brother and I used to do that growing up. We'd play one-on-one -on -one football, and I'd be the quarterback, and I'd throw the ball to myself. I'd be the receiver and the quarterback on purpose. But those roles are supposed to be separate. You can't be, you're not supposed to be quarterback and receiver. The point is here, in the Old Testament Israel, from the line of Judah, somebody was supposed to be king. You had to be a descendant of David. And it was prophesied the Christ would be, uh, the Messiah would be a descendant of David from the line of Judah. But to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was not a physical descendant of the tribe of Levi. So how is it that, that Jesus can be called a priest, qualified to be called a priest? Because he's a priest not in the order of Levi, but look at the end of verse four. You're a priest forever after order of what? It's that big, long, funny word there, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was this guy that comes on the scene in the book of Genesis, he off, and Abraham offers him a tenth, a tithe, recognizes Melchizedek as a priest, and it tells us in the book of Hebrews that Melchizedek didn't have any, nobody knew where he come from, nobody knew what happened to him, no mother or father, no, no genealogy. And what it said of Jesus in Hebrews, take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter seven, really quick. Turn to Hebrews chapter seven. Hebrews chapter seven, you gotta see this instead of me just talking about it. Hebrews chapter seven, and it says in verse 14, I hear some Bible pages turning and I might hear a few phone screens are squeaking. I hope you're not on Facebook. Repent. I'm not saying it's bad to be on Facebook. I'm saying it is bad to be on Facebook when the word of God's being preached. Now I do mean that. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord who was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. So Jesus from the tribe of Judah, God didn't say anything about priests coming from the tribe of Judah. So how do we resolve this? How can he be called a priest? Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement, 
not from what tribe he's from, but concerning bodily descent. But by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So on what basis is Jesus a priest? Not, it's not based on a legal requirement that he's from the tribe of Levi, which he's not. He's from the tribe of Judah. It's based on the fact of the power of an indestructible life. It's based on the fact that he rose again. He's alive. And there's no one like him. So he's a priest because he died and he rose again and death had no power over him. So he's qualified to be a priest. That's what Hebrews 7 is talking about. Yesterday, Travis Arnold went on a road trip with me. And I uh, asked him this morning, I said, Travis, you ready for another road trip? And he said, no. <laughs> we went to St. Louis and ended up taking us, on the way back, took us four hours instead of two hours because I missed the turn there at Mount Vernon and I started seeing signs about Rim Lake. I thought, I've never seen this many signs about Rim Lake. I said, Travis, is Marion, is it right on the interstate? You see, I think it is. I said, okay, yeah, I just didn't recognize it. Before, so we kept going. He didn't stop me either. <laughs> so we drive an hour out of the way. Finally, I said, Travis, I think we went the wrong way. He said, yeah, I know we did. I just didn't say nothing. <laughs> Something like that. I'm probably butchering the story so you can correct him later. But So faced with reality, I've been going the wrong way for an hour. Now I've got to turn around and go back an hour. What a horrible thing. What a horrible thought, a feeling it is to realize that all the time you thought you were going the right way and suddenly you realize, I have got to turn around. And not only have I got to humbly admit I've been going the wrong way and turn around, I've got to, I've got to make up for it. That's a horrible thing. I say that because... When it comes to following Jesus, to going to heaven, there's a lot of people come under conviction and come faith, and some of you have. The reality is, before you became a Christian, you thought you, thought you were going the right way because of the religious tradition you were brought up in. But as you became to understand that good works and doing what the church says and this and that doesn't get you to heaven, but it's faith alone in Jesus, and you realized you were going this way happily, you didn't realize you were going this way, and all of a sudden you realize, you mean all my life I've been going the wrong way? Yep. And now I've got to turn around? I've got to repent? And that's a wrestle, struggle. I've got to repent and make up for it? No. That's the difference in the analogy. You don't repent and make up for lost time. No. We have a high priest who's also sacrificed, according to Hebrews 7. So you repent, and then you rest in him. He makes up for it because of his righteous life and his perfect death and his resurrection, his ascension, his king, amen? So I want you to see that in Hebrews chapter 7. Now look at your Bible. Look at your Bible in Hebrews 7, verse 22. Now, as you're turning there, if uh, I ever need somebody to go with me somewhere, I hope I didn't run away all my volunteers. Right, uh, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22 says this this makes Jesus you know, why is all this important about Jesus being a high priest I think this is the question that may linger in your mind Melchizedek Jesus being a priest and a king why, why are you taking so much time on that preacher because the Bible does if the Bible does we should too right 
This is not a filler. It's not a filler. This is why it's important. This makes Jesus, you see verse 22 in your Bible? You want to know why it's important? Look at your Bible or listen carefully. This makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. Old covenant, it's like that guy in Pilgrim's Progress that keeps beating faithful down. The only thing he could do, you represented Moses in the law. The only thing the law can do is beat you down, beat you down, beat you down. That's the old covenant, beat you down, beat you down. And he doesn't know how to show mercy. But Jesus, he's a perfect law keeper. And he helps you up and gives you mercy and gives you strength to keep going. That's the, that's the better covenant we're talking about. The new covenant, we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. This, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's just not filler. New covenant in my blood, that's, that's a word. His blood puts into effect this better covenant where we receive mercy and help to live the Christian life. We're not just showing that we're sinners now. We're saved from our sin. Whew. Oh, church. My desire is a church family. I, I don't know. I, I look at your body language as you're sitting in these chairs right now. I'm trying to gauge, are you getting it? Does this stir your soul? Or are you checking your watch? Are you checking out? I mean, maybe you had a long night last night. This is, this is everything. This is everything. He's a better guarantee of a better covenant. Verse 23, look at it. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. See that? That's good. He's able to save to the uttermost. Law can't do that. Better covenant through Jesus. Uttermost. Right? All the way. Able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Remember, He's reigning as King and as priest. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for this, those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Man, what a high priest. He doesn't just bring the sacrifice. He brings himself. He is the sacrifice. What a Savior. What a God. So when I'm giving this illustration just now about having to, uh, you know... Repent, make up for lost time. No, we repent. Turn to Jesus. We recognize we'll be going the wrong way. We repent, and then we rest in our high priest. We just rest in his work. And because we're resting in his work, we work, right? But not to make up for lost time, but because we love the high priest. We love our Savior. We're resting. I'm not trying to work for this now. I'm resting in his work. We, souls in danger look above Jesus completely saves we have a priest who is interceding who is praying so we should be resting in him Ligon Duncan says right now at the right hand of God right now there is a human being named Jesus fully human fully God right 
You understand that? That should bring us so much comfort that the one who intercedes and prays for us that we are resting in knows what it's like to be here and live among us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a high priest we serve. And we recognize as a Christian, we're starting to veer off the narrow way like Christian does in the book book of Pilgrim's Progress. We repent and we ask God to forgive us. And he's faithful to do that. Because he's that kind of high priest and he's always serving that way. He never takes a break. One of the quotes from our secret church Sunday, uh, Friday night that David Platt shared was from a man named J.C. Ryle. If you've never read, read the book Holiness by J.C. Ryle, he wrote it in the 19th century. Read it. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle said this about prayer. Fear not because your prayer is stammering, your words feeble, and your language poor. Jesus can understand you. (laughs) Isn't that comforting? Preacher, I don't know how to pray. Yes, you do. He can understand you. Just talk to him in prayer because he serves as our high priest. Well, the Lord Jesus is ruling as our king. The Lord Jesus is serving as our high priest. And thirdly and finally, the Lord Jesus is returning as our warrior. Amen? Our warrior. Now, we could be on the other side and should be enemies of God, but we're not. We're in the kingdom by faith through Jesus. He's returning as our warrior. It's like the people in in France occupied by Nazi Germany, but knowing that the allies are coming, that that something like D-Day is coming, and finally it comes. A warrior's coming for them. In a much greater way, we've got a warrior coming that his his victory is already really accomplished on the cross. It's unquestionable. Our warrior's coming. Now, this is what the Jews were expecting, wasn't it? They were expecting a warrior king the first time Jesus came. That's why the disciples said in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom? He said, it's not for you to know times or seasons. But here's, I got a job for you. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the innermost parts of the earth. While you're waiting for the kingdom to come in its fullness, you just keep sharing the gospel and extending my kingdom and listening to my army and extending the kingdom. So they were expecting him to come, but then Jesus went up in the clouds that day, remember? And they're staring like this. And two men clothed in white says to him, boys, what are you doing looking up? The one who's going that way is coming back in just the same way. And when he comes, he's not coming in a manger. He's coming as your warrior. We see that in Revelation, don't we? Revelation chapter 6, I believe it is, verse 15. Listen. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. These are unbelievers because he's not their king. He is king, but they don't follow him as king. Let me just stop for a second. You can agree this morning that Jesus is king. The devil agrees that he's king too. 
but he's not following. And I got a feeling there's people probably here this morning that you would agree wholeheartedly Jesus is king. I hope you're that far along. But you're not following him. You're just mouthing the words. You're going through the motions. And what's said in Revelation 6 right here I'm reading is being said of you if you don't repent and become born again. It says of these people that they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for great for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Now for us who are believers, we want to see the face of Christ, right? In his presence is fullness of joy. But when that day comes for unbelievers, hide us from the face of the lamb. They're afraid of his judgment. And that's what we see in Hebrews, or excuse me, in Psalm 110. If you look in your Bible just quickly so you'll see it. Verse five and six, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. You see it? See, I'm not making it up. The Messiah is a warrior. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Verse six, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, just as David did when he was fighting a battle and then went on to go to completely wipe out his enemies. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He will completely and thoroughly destroy the enemies of God and of his people. We have a warrior who is coming. And why is that important? We have a warrior who's coming, so we should be enduring and looking for him. Enduring and looking for him. A verse that was shared Friday night that called my attention at Secret Church is from Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. It says, the one who conquers, perseveres, endures. They don't just have this uh, fleeting faith, you know, yeah, I'll, I want Jesus, and, and, and then they don't follow Jesus. They persevere in faith is what this is talking about. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, and I was listening to that verse being quoted by David Platt Friday night, and I thought to myself, what? The one who conquers, the one who has true saving faith, I, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. What? We're forgiven, and he's going to grant for us to sit with him on his throne in fulfillment of what Genesis says about being kings and about, and about ruling the earth. Yes, we're going to do that in fulfillment. We ruined it at the fall. We, we inherited it as part of the curse, but Jesus took care of it at the cross, reversed the effects of the curse, and one day we're going to reign with him, me, sinful, rebel, still struggling with sin every day as I do, but he says, you're my child, and you're going to reign with me on my throne. It's incredible. Alexander McLaren said, it's better to sit on his throne than to be his footstool. You know, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I'm gonna put, put your enemies right under there. We don't wanna be there. But not only are we not under his feet being crushed by him, we're gonna sit on his throne. We're gonna be in a place with him of unimaginable fellowship. What more could we ask? Jesus, we have, a, we have a king who is ruling. We have a priest in Jesus who is praying. And we have a king who is coming. What more, what more could we want? What, what more could we ask for? What more do we really 
need. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for being our God. Pray with me. Thank you for such great promises for those that are in your kingdom. Thank you that the promises made to Israel in Psalm 110, that they're made to the nations, they're made to all those who trust in Jesus and become children of Abraham by faith. Because our inheritance is not based on a legal requirement either or a certain blood going through our veins, but it's based on the power of an indestructible life. It's based on faith in the one who died and rose again. So thank you for these promises that you're our, you're our ruling king, you're our priest that's serving us, Lord, and praying for us, and you are the warrior that's coming. Give us a perspective in all the midst of all the things we're experiencing and going through and things that are worrying us and troubling us, Lord. Help us to look up, even in our grief and even in our perplexity and our questions and doubts, God. Help us to look up and cry out, our Lord Jesus Christ reigns. And help us to make it known to the nations. And Father, I pray this morning if there's one here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord. They're not following Jesus. God, I pray that you would convict them strongly. Not just on the fact that judgment's coming, Lord, but, but on all that they are. They are missing even now. And do this for your name's sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Tim's going to come this morning and lead us in this uh, wonderful song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. I love that. It's in, it's in who Christ is, right? And that's what we're going to sing, right? As we're a confession of faith together before the Lord's Supper. And as, as Tim and the praise band begin to lead us, or Tim begins to lead us, um, if you're not a Christian, if you've not been born again, if you're concerned about your soul, if any of what I've said by the grace of God has led you to be sitting there and think, I don't know that I'm ready, or I know I'm not ready to meet the Lord. I would encourage you to come and talk with me while we're singing this song. And if not now, if that's too much, that's okay. Coming up front's not anything more special than meeting me at the back. And I'd, be, I'd love to talk with you at the back of the church when the service is over, but please keep that in mind. And you don't even have to meet with me. Just, just call, out to the, call out to Jesus and say, I recognize I've sinned. I'm going the wrong way. I want, I want to turn to you. I want to put my trust in you. Help me to do so. And then you share that with somebody so you can begin to go through Scripture and be discipled and, 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 and ultimately profess that in baptism. Let's stand together, though. I'll be standing at front. You want to come and talk. You want to come and pray. You do so as we stand and sing together. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength.
whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.